Father in heaven, we praise you again and we thank you so much for the gift of your holy and inspired word. We are mindful that we have sought out many things in the world and that it has come against us in the days that have come before today. But we are glad that this is a new day, a Lord's day, and we praise you and thank you for all that you have done already by the ministry of your word and spirit as we have worshipped you this morning and now this evening. And, and as we come to this time before Paul's words to the Romans, we do ask that you would stir up our hearts again, that we may attend the ministry of your word with faith and hope. Holy Spirit, come in power. We are but frail people. You, Holy Spirit, can make effective this which we are about to do. So please come for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Edify, convict, convert, challenge, encourage, sanctify your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, our text this evening is verses 8 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord from Romans 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Amen. So ends the reading and hearing of God's word. May he add his blessing on it. Well, Paul's finally sort of getting into the meat of his letter. And we spent several weeks looking at the, the salutation there in verses 1 through 7. Paul introduced himself, uh, the apostle um, set apart for the gospel of God. We, we met Jesus, the, the one about whom the gospel um, is and concerns. We, we got to meet the Romans a little bit there uh, in verse 7. All those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And we, we saw how we share so much of, of what they had even then. And Paul now begins to tell them why he is writing to them. Remember, Paul has never been to Rome. He doesn't know these people, but he writes this letter to them. And in the first place, it may seem a little bold, a little brash for him to write such a lengthy letter. I mean, it wasn't, you know, Titus. He didn't write just a couple, a few chapters. He had to write 16 chapters to these people he's never met before. And maybe that makes sense. Maybe to someone he doesn't know, he has more to say and less to say to somebody like Timothy or Titus. What gives him the right? Well, it's, it's, it's what he talked about so much in the first seven verses that Paul is an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And he's been set apart specifically to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, you can see as we've read these five verses that Paul, even though he doesn't know them, has a, a sincere pastoral affection for the Christians in Rome. There's some connection that he feels with them. 
even if you go back to the previous passages from the last few weeks, verse 6, he's talking about the, the gospel going to the nations. And in verse 6, he says it's, it's including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He, he views them as the recipients of the gospel that he has been given to proclaim by Christ. And, and then we read tonight already that he, he wants to go to them, right? He's praying, always asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And the beginning of verse 11, for I long to see you. And it's this longing, this affection that he has for them um, that is expressed in these five verses. And, and it's expressed in two ways that will sort of serve as, as headings for our time in this passage. Paul's longing for them is expressed by way of prayer and intention. And Paul prays for them. And then he writes about his intention to see them. He prays for them and writes about his intention to see them. That's, that's how we're going to deal with it as we work our way through. Look there at verse 8 as we see Paul talking about his prayers for these Christians in Rome. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. It's not the same world that we live in now. I know that's hard to believe. 2,000 years ago, it was different. It was. It was very different. They didn't have text messages and emails, even that seems dated to say out loud, or telephones. Um, you know, for Paul to have heard about their faith, for their faith to be proclaimed in all the world, something remarkable has happened. I mean, this, this gospel that began in Jerusalem among the Jews has now emanated out from that city and has begun to, to, to take hold of the world. Not, not to say that Christianity was any huge thing at this point in history, but it's starting to seep in among the Jews and stretching out to the Gentiles. So the preaching of this good news has gone out and, and it has evidently arrived in Italy, in Rome, and led to the conversions of of enough people there that their believing has been reported and proclaimed out from them. So, so it's almost as if it was sent out from Jerusalem and it got to Rome and it started to reverberate back into the rest of the world so that Paul can say, I thank my God because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Isn't it interesting that he's very particular I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Certainly Paul doesn't know every individual single believer in the Roman church. And yet he expresses this thankfulness for all of them. And, and I point this out so that you can understand the affection that he seems to have for this particular church. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, um, there were several elders from a particular church in our presbytery that came here for a funeral service. And I didn't see them all at the same time. You know, I know them all from Presbytery meetings, but I didn't see them all in, at one point. I saw one here and one here and one there. And as I started to piece it together, my heart was strangely warmed, not just towards those elders, but toward that particular church. Now, would I say that I have warmth and affection for every individual believer in that church? Well, maybe not. But there is some sense 
In the same way that Paul writes it here, maybe some of you felt it too when you realized that some delegates, as it were, from River Oaks and Germantown were here for a funeral. We realize that they, they care for us and it stirs our hearts with affection for the believers there and for that church there so that now, if you hear the name of that church again, you, you may have warm feelings even if you've never met them before. And that's what Paul is saying. I have heard about your faith and I've heard about what God is doing in and through you. And I thank Him for His work. You see, Paul is pointing out here the spiritual unity that exists among believers. Our BCO mentions this in, in chapter 2 when it defines the visible church. Christ's church um, is, is all over the world. But that does not separate us. That does not put distance between us. Yes, there's physical distance between us. But we are united as one in Christ. Um, and, and, and this spiritual unity causes Paul to give thanks to God. As one author writes, Paul may be an unknown face to the church at Rome, but the Christians there are no strangers to his prayers. Now, I don't know what kind of motivation there is for us there that we should be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ wherever they may be. You know, we can't go through the whole list of every church in the world every week. Don't know if we could compile such a list. But as they come to your mind, pray for those you know who know Christ. For they are a part of our body. Not, not our local body here, but a part of our body of Christ that is united in our union with Him. <clears throat> Why exactly does Paul give thanks, though? Right, we can see the connection he's making, that he is glad for their faith, and we see that, that, that the spirituality of the church is significant to him, and the connection we have in Christ is significant. But why, why is it a thankful prayer that he offers up through Christ? You know, why doesn't he congratulate the Roman Christians on their, their good work? Why doesn't, he, um, why doesn't he give them a good pat on the back for laboring so hard after such a reputable faith that it's made itself known throughout the world. Why doesn't Paul react to them like this? You're already tracking, hopefully, with me. It's because their faith is not something that they have developed on their own, right? Doesn't make any sense for my mother to give me a gift and for me to turn to my daughter and say thank you for it. Does it make any sense for my mother to give me a gift and for me to go look in the mirror and praise myself for how wonderful I've been to earn such a, such a thing that I've acquired? Paul says it in Philippians chapter 1. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Paul hears of their faith and he thanks God because he is the one who has given it to them. You know, Christian, all that you are toward God 
all that you have in Him is not your own work. It is a gift of God out of His great love with which He has loved you. Out of that mercy that overflows for those whom He has set His sights upon. This truth that God is to be thanked and praised for what's happening in us. This, let this truth squash pride and smite arrogance in our hearts. How foolish of us to think that we can operate in the Christian world making some kind of name for ourselves. Sometimes will creep into your mind, won't it? Just before you pray out loud in front of a group of people, I, I hope that my words will make people think well of me. Well, I hope that we lose that sin before we get to glory. How foolish of us to fail to recognize the source of all that is good in us. Our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ and His Father who sent Him and the Spirit who has applied it to us. We are but servants doing our duty. We are recipients of an alien righteousness, not something we could have earned on our own. Let us praise God and thank Him for what He's done. Paul elaborates a little further on this thanksgiving as he writes, their faith that he's heard about stirs within him this desire to, to see them. Right, Verse 9, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. The grace that God has shown to them in Rome has um, caused Paul to give thanks to God and to pray for them unceasingly. Particularly, he has this prayer request that we'll get to in a minute at the ver end of verse 10, that he might be able to go to them and minister some grace to them. Now, these verses, even just the first two and a half that we've read so far, are packed to the brim with rich theology. But I want us to focus in on one thought, one particular thought. At least right here. Grace leads to praise. Grace leads to praise. John Murray writes it like this. The faith of the saints. So think about Paul writing to Rome. The faith of those saints, Murray says, is evidence of God's grace. Is evidence that he has been at work in them, that he is at work in them, that he will continue to be at work in them. It is evidence of God doing something, of evidence of God come down toward them in Jesus, in the gospel proclaimed. Mary says the faith of the saints is evidence of God's grace and the first reaction must therefore be thanksgiving to God. Grace leads to praise. If we look and we see anything that God is doing, if, if, if it is of any good, of, of any repute, of, of, of anything worthy of praise, all glory is ascribed to God. And isn't it wonderful that everything He does is just like this? That there's not a thing God does that is not worthy of His praise. All He does honors Him. And this is the whole life of a Christian that grace leads to praise. Why has God redeemed you? So that you might worship Him. So like the Israelites realized in Exodus, right? 
that the best place to be was always in submission to God's will, always in submission to God's worship, because all of his blessing is poured out there. Why is it such a wonderful thing that we have been saved from our sin? Well, we might say very quickly that we don't have to suffer the penalty for it. And amen. Yes, amen. No penalty for sin because of what Christ has done. But so much more than that, grace leads to everlasting praise. And in that praise and worship of our God is all the good that our hearts would ever yearn for. Believe it now that everything here will let you down. But grace upon grace that God has poured out on you will lead to His praise and His worship and His glory. And in that is found all the good that you yearn for, Christian. There is no better place to be. But think of it more. What a gracious thing God has done for us. That apart from Him, we were dead in sins and trespasses. I mean, just go track the first ten verses of Ephesians 2. We were dead in sins and trespasses. We walked around in this world like wicked people, just like everybody else. But God, right? Because of His great mercy... And out of that great love with which he's loved us, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. It's, it's like the disobedient Israelites. Right? God had moved toward them and drawn them and called them and, and, and set out his intention to make them his own. And as he's giving Moses the rules for his worship, what happens at the bottom of the mountain? They forsake him. And not just sort of in a convenient way, but in an intentional way. Yeah, Aaron might have suggested that that golden calf just popped out of the fire. But the people asked him to make it. And they bow down willingly to it. And what does God do? Well, death comes. And threatening of departing them comes. But what does he do in the end? He leads them into the land and he follows them there. He goes with them. His mercy and His love are still poured out on them as wicked as they had been. And that is what He has done for us. As sinners, we have received mercy from God, spared from the punishment that we deserve. Because why? Because Jesus died for us. It's all through Christ. That, that's what Paul's alluding to in verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. It's these little ways that Paul sort of refers to all of the gospel life in three words. Paul's thanksgiving is lifted up through Christ because all of our spiritual benefit has come through Him. That not a thing that we have that has been given to us by God has come apart from our union with Christ. From His being knit to us by faith. Back to Ephesians chapter 2. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is what we have received. What is your response? That's what Paul is pointing out to us. Grace leads to praise. Beloved, what's your response to the grace that you've received? 
mimic Paul. Thank him. Thank God. And praise God for what he has done. You know, and maybe maybe in the context of Paul's writing here, the best the best application for us to think through is, is that of prayer. Right? The grace of God in the life of the Romans led Paul to his knees before the throne of grace. How much more should the grace of God in the life of you, in your own life, how much more should that grace lead you before God in prayer and thanksgiving? If Paul thanks God so much unceasingly for the grace at work in the lives of people he has never set eyes on, how much more should our lives be devoted to thanking our Lord and praising His name for what He has done for us? Right? Oh, praise the Lord for all that He has done for us. Paul has a strong affinity for the Roman Christians. And he explains a little bit more, starting there in the middle of 10, about why he wants to come to them, or just really about the fact that he wants to come to them. Why exactly he wants to come is still a little muddy. Here, look, you'll see. Look at verse 9, just to get context. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. It seems that Paul has been trying to go to Rome for a while. You know, ignore the irony of the fact that when Paul finally does go to Rome, it's to be executed. That's, that's another time. He wants to go see them. And apparently he has prayed and prayed and prayed. I mean, verse 10 reads, right, that somehow, right, you know, I thought it was going to be straightforward. Maybe eventually it will somehow be that by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Now at last, you know, when do you say at last? After you've been trying to do something for a long time. At last, I understand, you know, what to do with my fourth child in this particular circumstance. And that's, that's a joke because I don't think I'll ever understand what to do with children at all. Um, at last, he says, maybe now at last I will succeed in coming to you. You need to get a sense of, of that yearning and and that affection that's driving him to go to Rome. He's been asking the Lord to make it possible for him to get to them, but the Lord has not said yes. Paul's been waiting. He's been trying. He's been yearning, but unable. I wonder if you've ever experienced something like that. Lord, I need an answer to this question. And I don't know what to do. Where to go to school. Or what job to take. What house to buy. What person to marry. How to raise my children. Lord, I've, I've asked for this difficult thing to be made clear to me so that I will know the purpose for my suffering. Father, I, I don't know why this sin keeps tormenting me and I've pled and pled and pled for it to be removed 
and yet still it remains. God doesn't always answer the way we want. Sometimes he answers our prayers and we don't realize he's answered our prayers because he answers in a way that we never would have expected him to answer our prayers. Earlier this week, um, I was talking to a a dear friend of mine and and he reminded me of a quote from an old dead guy that I can't remember the name of. Um, And he said, he said, the school of suffering is so full of gracious teachings but we would never choose to attend if it were up to us. Isn't that so true? Hasn't the Lord taught you so much in your hard things that you never would have asked for it if it had been up to you? And that's sometimes how our prayers feel. I wonder what Paul learned when he kept trying and kept wanting and, and kept leaning to go to Rome and continually God would put up stops in his path. You know, there's other places, especially in, in, in Corinthians where Paul well, particularly in Corinthians, where Paul writes about this thorn in the flesh and he pled and he pled and he pled for God to take it away and God said, no, you're going you're gonna to keep that. Because there was something better in that hardship than would have been otherwise. Paul wanted to go to Rome. But continually was, was turned away One commentator named Barnett says that neither Paul's prayers nor ours, even our most noble, are always answered in ways that seem best to us. You know, we may think that we're so good at praying for this particular thing, and we've been so, you know, consistent and unceasing in our prayer for it. And when it finally seems to have an answer, we may still even go, that's the answer? This, this is the answer. This does not seem best. And I think in that moment, I would simply encourage you to go back to Eli in, second, in First Samuel and remember what even that very difficult and troubled man said. When Samuel told him hard news from the Lord, what did Eli say? Let the Lord do what seems best to him. Paul doesn't know if he'll ever get to Rome when he's writing this. But what is it that he intends to do when he gets there? He tells us, sort of. Verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. What's his purpose? When he gets to Rome, he he intends to strengthen them and to to, to find mutual encouragement with them. And we may even say that these are the same things. There's, there's some kind of, of, from verse 11, some spiritual strengthening that he intends for them to receive when he gets there. And at the same time, verse 12, there's this mutual encouragement that will be for both of them because of their shared faith. We don't really know exactly what he's talking about. Why do the Romans need some special spiritual strengthening? We don't know. What's specifically is going to be encouraging about their mutual faith we don't know and 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 the ambiguity is is i would imagine rather intentional my dearest friends in the whole world are six pastors that are spread across michigan georgia florida and belize we are 
a company of pastors after the, uh, the practice of John Calvin in 16th century Geneva, which makes us feel really important when we call ourselves a company of pastors. Um, our group began about four years ago over email and Zoom. We're disconnected physically, and so we've connected. They're, they're ministers in the PCA. And we were supposed to meet in person for the first time in early 2020. I'll give you all a moment to catch up. In case you remember what happened in early 2020, you weren't allowed to meet anybody ever. Ever, 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 ever. We were supposed to meet at General Assembly in 2022. General Assembly didn't happen in 2022. For a few of us, we didn't meet in person for the first time until the summer of 2021. This means that we were, um, we had spent a lot of time talking and interacting and praying, but we didn't actually meet in person for nearly two years As beloved as we had become to one another, even at that point in our relationships, there was something about the handshakes and and the the late night conversations and the the departing hugs. There's something about that physical in-person interaction that grew our friendship more than we ever could have imagined. We continually see each other two, three times a year, sometimes. You know, without those in-person experiences, our relationship might have continued, but certainly would not have been as strong and encouraging as it has become. These men can say anything to me. They can call me out for whatever they want. They can tell me anything they want. And they know that we, we pray together and we cry together and we laugh together. And we lament things in the church together. And we, we celebrate the good news of the gospel together. And we, we, we encourage each other in our ministry of preaching so that the word might continue to go out. It is such a blessing. We experienced and we continue experiencing over the years what Paul is talking about doing in Rome right here. That while we may not know exactly what he has in mind in verses 11 and 12, we know that Christians those separated physically, are united spiritually. And there is a strengthening and an encouraging that takes place when we are together. Yes? It's something significant that, that you can't quite put words to. That a phone call is good, right? A text message is, is nice. But when that person shows up, it speaks. And the Holy Spirit does something in and among and around His people when they're together. It's what Paul talks about in Hebrews chapter 10. It's far enough away from where Tim is currently. I don't feel bad going here. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in 19, uh, well, Paul, oh, gave it away, sorry. Um, the writer of Hebrews is, um, <laughs> sorry. We can talk about that privately if you want to sometime. Um, the author's drawing this connection between confidence in Christ and regular communion with our brothers and sisters in Him. Right, there's this connection that he draws be between being confident and assured of what Jesus has done for us, and it's connected to, to, to us as we're connected to each other. Here, just listen. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in 19. Therefore, brothers... 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Right? He's talking about this life as a believer that we draw near to God because of what Christ has done. In verse 23, he goes on, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And what does he connect to this? This, this unwavering holding fast of our confession because God's faithful, because Christ is faithful. How, how does he encourage us to do this? Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Life is better together. That's what he says. Life as a Christian is better together. You know, we started a hard season in our church two or three weeks ago. And arguably, you could say it's been going on for a while. And I texted my friend, ironically not one of those six that I mentioned already, texted a friend of mine and told him we had three funerals in almost as many days coming up. And I asked him to pray for Tim, for all of us. And he said, you know, those seasons are very, very difficult. But oftentimes, those seasons of difficulty yield so much encouragement and companionship and love in a congregation. Why? Because it is the Lord ripping us away from the world and pushing us in together. It is Him strengthening us and, and bringing to us together for mutual encouragement. Because as we lament death, we are reminded that together we have all found life in Christ. And we are able to keep on. Praise the Lord for these Roman Christians whose faith proclaimed in the world caused Paul to write these words. And may the Holy Spirit come and apply it to each of our hearts that, that we would be encouraged among ourselves as we're together in the great gospel that God has worked in saving us. Amen. Father in heaven, please, for the sake of your Son, send the Holy Spirit to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.